The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Friday morning, the 27th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The world is looking on while the Middle East explodes. Yesterday in Dublin, the Thornister, Micheál Martin, spelled out the Irish government's position on the conflict. Our government is very clear, and I've been very clear, that adherence to international law is, 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 a, is a prerequisite and an essential uh, need and imperative. But above all, we've also increased our funding to UNRWA in particular. And I've met with um, other member states during the week, Monday, uh, on bilateral, specifically asking for additional aid for UNRWA. I spoke to the Israeli Foreign Minister on Monday, uh, making it clear that we wanted a humanitarian pause. And, I was, and at, the, at the subsequent fact meeting, um, there was a very significant growing numbers of member states coming around to the view that we needed a humanitarian pause. Meanwhile, in Brussels, Leo Varadkar met with the other 26 European leaders to whom the Taoiseach has been outlining Ireland's position on this conflict. I'm hoping that the Council this week will follow through on that. And that's the real work. You know, we can... We can make all the statements we like, but we've got to persuade people to go in a separate direct, in a d- d- definitive direction. And that's what we're doing at European level, to get people to uh, call for a humanitarian pause to enable aid to get in. When I spoke to the Israeli foreign minister, I said, we need fuel into Gaza. If you don't have fuel, you do not have water. Thank you, Tony. Uh, and I think it's unacceptable what's happening. Yeah. Uh, without question, the human suffering is unacceptable. Thank you, Tony. Uh, too many women, too many children are dying. Uh, and we have asked for that humanitarian pause in the first yeah. instance to enable us to get fuel in there. Because fuel will fuel the desalination plants, it will get the water pumps going to get water going, and every human being is entitled to water. Michal Martin, the Tanisha, was speaking in the Dáil yesterday. As mentioned, uh, the Taoiseach was in Brussels for an EU summit. Let's speak to Karen Coleman, the editor with EU News Radio, which covers EU news for Irish radio stations. Good morning, Karen. Thanks for joining us on the programme. As always, up to this point, the European Union has found it next to impossible to speak with one voice in terms of how it feels this conflict that is up until last night and an agreed statement has called for pauses in the conflict it's stopped short though hasn't it in terms of calling for a ceasefire which would bring about an end to this conflict albeit temporarily to allow for peace talks yes uh, good morning michael um a ceasefire would have been considered uh, far too strong by some of the EU countries who were locked, uh, for, well, not literally, but metaphorically, for several hours last night in Brussels to try and reach an agreement. Apparently, I was reading this morning, no mo- mobile phones were allowed in and diplomats were kept in the dark as to what was going on. So that shows you the gravity uh, of the talks last night and the secrecy around them. They've agreed, as you said, to call in their statement for humanitarian causes and pauses, but I think um, it was expected they wouldn't have agreed to call for a ceasefire that would have been considered far too strong. And in particular, countries like Germany, Austria and the Czech Republic would have been very much against that. And there has been an issue. I mean, Joseph Borrell, the EU's high representative earlier in the week, had, had talked about a humanitarian pause. Um, but in the end, they agreed on pauses, which I think is 
that pause is, is not as strong as a pause. So interesting in terms of the delicacy around whether it's a pause, pauses or a ceasefire. Mm. Why do you think that is? Uh, why is it so difficult uh, for the leaders of some European countries to call for peace? Or call for a ceasefire because they would consider a ceasefire far too strong. And interestingly, the BBC this morning is reporting um, uh, an interview with a US State Department spokesman who has said that a ceasefire would enable Hamas to what he called or she called, not sure, rest and refit and continue to launch what they call terrorist operations against Israel. So I think um, that would have been reflected by some of the EU leaders that to call for a ceasefire would have meant, would have given time for Hamas and their view to, in in, in this particular person's uh, words, rest and refit. And that would have been far too strong. Now, that uh, U.S. State Mm. Department spokesman has been saying to the BBC that Hamas are continuing to launch rocket attacks against Israel, while Israel, of course, is launching massive um, operations and, and, and attacks on the Palestinian people. So, I mean, I think it reflects the decades long differences between some EU countries on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and clearly Germany, Austria and Czech Republic are taking a very different view to, we'll say, countries like Ireland. Um, and you heard um, from the Tornish to there who, who early on mm. they've been talking about this humanitarian pause. Mm. And when you talk about Austria, Germany, the Czech Republic, uh, they believe uh, that Israel uh, is right to be so determined to annihilate Hamas and what goes with that, because that cannot be done in isolation of the killing of thousands of civilians, men, women and children. We're at a a death toll now of eight and a half thousand at a minimum, it would seem. Um, That might be in total. I think the Mm. WHO is saying now something like 7,000 people in Gaza. Mm, With the 1,400 in Israel, yes. With the 1,400 in Israel Mm. in addition to that. And they're saying that um, more than UNICEF is saying more than 2,700 children in the pa- in, in Gaza have been killed. And that's in addition, of course, to the numbers of children mm. that have been killed by Hamas. The numbers are, are absolutely staggering and it is incredible to watch mm. these assaults um, that are being carried out on the Palestinian people in Gaza. I mean, what Israel is saying is that if uh, Palestinians have stayed on in the areas that they... Uh, told them to evacuate, then they're effectively um, Hamas sympathisers, which is a very stark uh, statement to issue when you when you uh, you know when you see the numbers of children being killed or mm. children uh, fleeing these areas and innocent civilians. I mean, it is quite staggering to see what is going on there at the moment. Um, also, of course, one has to question why Hamas is continuing to uh, fire uh, uh, rockets, if these statements are true, against the Israelis as well. Um, But it is unbelievable the numbers being killed now. And of course, we are reaching a situation where, as you've been hearing, fuel is about to run out, water um, supplies are in very uh, short supply. Uh, The humanitarian situation in Gaza is just reaching catastrophic levels. 
Um, and, you know, it's only the hospitals are going to stop operating very shortly if they can't get fuel uh, to keep them going. Um, so the situation is get, getting ever increasingly catastrophic if some form of ceasefire or pause or pauses is not reached very soon. The obvious question about the 2,700 children who have died in Gaza is what did they do on anybody? Uh, Why are some of uh, the European leaders not asking that question themselves, do you think? Is it uh, German guilt, Austrian guilt uh, from the Second World War? Of course, that um, is overshadowing a lot of the current stance that has been taken by Germany and certainly I think that fed into Ursula von der Leyen's controversial (coughs) visit to Israel um, when she appeared to be less than um, objective in terms of her overall reaction. I mean, I think, you know, she should have also potentially gone into, she couldn't have gone into Gaza, let's face it, but she could have gone into the West Bank maybe um, and spoken to the Palestinians there, but she took a a very, of course, um, strong uh, stance in terms of supporting the Israelis at the time, and that obviously um, has garnered a lot of criticism since then. But, you know, of course, the shadow of the Holocaust um, and what the Nazis did to the Jewish people, that has influenced very strongly um, of course, the, the setting up of the Israeli state and then currently feeds into those different views, those varying views among the 27 EU member states. And then you take a country like Ireland and, you know, we have a very different view. Our history is very different. We naturally, I think, have been a country that has been very sympathetic to the Palestinian people. We very much view the need for a two-state solution. Um, We come at it from a very different perspective. And, of course, when you try to get unanimous agreement on such a hugely dramatic situation as what is happening um, in Gaza and between the Israelis and the Palestinians, you can see how very difficult it is. Um, And one might say that it was a sort of uh, a a good thing, at least, that they got an agreement on the statement that arrived late last night and the need for corridors and pauses. Mm. Whether it amounts to anything, Michael, is a very different matter. Well, that's Um, the thing. Uh, The uh, United Nations met in emergency session yesterday and failed to to, uh, agree on a statement. I, I take it that whilst there might be some pressure on Israel because of the European Union statement, looking for pauses, looking for humanitarian corridors, looking for aid to get in and so on, the Israelis won't be feeling too much heat? Well, the big question will be what will the US do here? I mean, they obviously are a a huge ally in terms of the current Israel position. And if you take the statement that the BBC is reporting this morning about the US State Department saying there isn't going to be a ceasefire um, because that would enable Hamas to rest and refit, then it's difficult to see how a ceasefire will actually come about. Um, Israel seems to be determined to, in its words, wipe out Hamas. 
but you know, I've been to Gaza. I've I've made several documentaries in this region. I've been to the Gaza Strip, to the West Bank, to settlements um, there. And when you go into Gaza, I mean, when when people describe it as like a giant prison camp, that's not a, an exaggeration. Um, they they haven't been able to get out to Egypt through the Rafah crossing and Erez, which is the main crossing between Israel and Gaza, is now closed to them. So the circumstances are extremely difficult. And when you go into the refugee camps there, I mean, there, that was year, years ago when I first started visiting that region. They were bad. Um, it, you know, it's very difficult to determine, I would have thought, where Hamas are hiding out and the difference between their, where they hide out and where the civilians are, including the women and children who have now been targeted in these attacks. So it's, I, don't, I don't see how Israel can, in its view, wipe out Hamas um, and continue doing that without the death toll escalating ever more and the humanitarian crisis getting increasingly bad. Mm-hmm. And the fear of uh, uh, land war, um, is uh, there speculation now um, of a, a ground attack uh, that Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu said uh, that it's going to happen very soon. Do you believe from what you're hearing that that will be the case? Well, as as far as I can see, just reading very quickly this morning, Michael, I think there might have been some kind of ground offensive to go along with some military uh, airstrikes last mm-hmm. night. I believe now they've pulled out again. They may have been going into the middle part of Gaza. Um, I mean, it certainly seems at the moment that Israel is determined to destroy Hamas. They're reporting this morning, I think, that they killed a a, a very senior Hamas person who was uh, behind, they say, recent attacks against the Israelis. Uh, I don't see at the moment any signs of Israel withdrawing from that stance or stepping down from that stance. Um, So one would have to then uh, believe that they are going to go in further. They're going to mount a, 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 a ground assault, ground offensive against the Gaza Strip um, unless something changes that position, unless something pulls them back. At the same time, Hamas will have to stop attacking Israel if these accounts of daily rocket attacks by Hamas against Israel um is what is happening that they are uh, that that they are going on then Hamas also has to stop both sides have to stop mm. but it's very difficult at the moment to see the situation going into some kind of retreat and a ceasefire happening i i, I find it hard to believe right mm. now i mean i think when you listen to some of the hardline israelis and and those who are launching these um attacks against the people in Gaza, they seem to, to be determined to continue until they wipe out, in their view, Hamas. Mm. It's really impossible to understand why world leaders would not be looking for peace, for the prospect of peace, to call for a ceasefire in the hope that talks would lead to peace. And while Ireland, Luxembourg, the Netherlands uh, may want a, a ceasefire, Uh, may condemn some of the actions of Israel. That joint European statement causes for pauses. 
so that the Israeli doesn't have to stop that onslaught, uh, which would give Hamas the chance uh, to regroup and to rest, as you say, Karen. But that is the situation. Um, it's fair to say that from a Palestinian perspective, from a civilian Palestinian perspective, it's a pretty hopeless situation in Gaza. It's absolutely horrendous. And it's absolutely horrendous. I mean, when you see the aftermath of these attacks on Gaza, which, as I said, I mean, Gaza, the situation there has already been so difficult for the people. Um, it's just horrendous. And and, you're, and and I think we're all just um, looking at these pictures and reading these accounts and we're raising our hands in, our, in the air and, and we're going, what's going on here? What's happening? I mean, why, why is this continuing? What can we do? And, you know, we may look back in decades to come and say, the world did nothing. We just stood by. And it's, it's, it's not like we're not witnessing what's going on. We know what's happening. We can see the horrific aftermath, the reports, the pictures. Um, but, but as you said earlier, Michael, this is so wrapped up with history. And it's so complicated because of the Holocaust and what happened to the Jewish people. Um, and at the same time, we're, we're, we're looking at what's going on and witnessing the killings of the Palestinian people, and, and, and it just seems absolutely horrific. But this has been going on for decades. I mean, the, the, the plight of the Palestinian people and the division of their areas, the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, and, and, and then the Israeli settlers staying in areas that have been occupied, occupying Palestinian territories has been very, very difficult, trying to broker a peace process. I mean, we thought there was a peace process mm. that was going to lead to a two-state solution years ago, but yeah. that has never happened. Mm. Um, and it seems a very intractable situation yeah, I think and Bill, very difficult. Bill, Clinton, the Bill now Clinton is the last yes. American president who yes. really showed any interest. This is the problem. I mean, Clinton, uh, you know, the Oslo Peace Accords, that was considered a tremendous goal and, 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 um, and uh, outcome at the time. But, but that has faded now. And of course, other conflicts took over. They took the uh, spotlight away from the Palestinian-Israeli conflict and the drive for a two-state solution. Um, and unfortunately, um, that led to a situation where the Palestinians felt increasingly ignored, left out. Um, and, you know, we have seen with the Netanyahu government, the situation there has become more hardline. And all of these factors are now leading to a potentially very catastrophic situation, not just in terms of the humanitarian situation yeah. for the Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, but of course the ominous signs of this conflict spreading mm. um, and, and that's you know yeah. that is not a good situation and, 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 for as the world. you say it's, it's happening in front of our eyes uh, and we'll watch on whilst uh, the Middle East uh, continues with uh, this chaos and killing Karen I have to leave it there thank you very much as always though for joining us on the programme today
Karen Coleman, the editor of EU News Radio, which covers EU news for Irish radio stations. Michael Reed on LMFM. One of uh, the things we learned uh, from uh, the final publication of uh, the census figures uh, for 2022 yesterday was that we no longer live in Holy Catholic Ireland. In fact, 14% of the population of this country say they have no religion whatsoever. Let's speak to Gillian Brennan, who's uh, the CEO of the Humanist Association of Ireland. A very good morning to you, Gillian, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. What do you learn from that data? If 14% of us have no religion, I I take it uh, that uh, there's far fewer Catholics in this country. And what do you think that should mean in effect for the way we live our lives in this country? Okay, good morning, Michael. Thank you very much for having me on the show. So the um, percentage of Roman Catholics in Ireland has decreased in the 2022 census down to 69%. And when you look at the 14% of people that declared no religion, that puts it at the second largest group behind Roman Catholic. And I suppose if you look overall at the changing um, profile in the country, so there is an increase of 63% of people with no religion since the last census in 2016. And if you look at the one from 2011, so just over a decade ago, there's a 187% increase. So it's changing all the time, um, and, and that, that grouping is, is becoming larger. Mm. And so we would contend that um, the true figure is even higher, because a lot of people tick the religion box out of a cultural affiliation so they may have been baptised into it or had sacraments, etc. when they were growing up and sort of still feel connected to it, even though they may no longer practice in any way. Yeah. Um, so we would believe that that figure is larger because there was um, almost 300,000 more people who didn't state a religion. So if you add that together with the no religion, that's over a million people. So we would say that, you know, the government and the state can't really ignore that grouping of people. You know, the, the three quarters of a million that did state we have no religion, that's a large group. Um, And I suppose in in Ireland now, although things are changing for the better, there are still significant areas of discrimination against the non-religion in the country. I mean, one of the biggest would be our education system. Um, You know, I suppose where people have no religion. Profess to be Catholics in order to get a place in the local school for their child. Yes, well, I I suppose there was a positive change in 2018 when the Education Admissions to Schools Act came into place, which removed the baptism barrier. But minority religions are still allowed to discriminate based on on religion. And I suppose the reality for most people um, is that if you live in, in rural Ireland and the further away from Dublin you go, the more difficult it is. The option to have your child... Um, educated in a, a multi-denominational school simply doesn't exist for most people. So there's no choice only to send your child to the local Catholic school. Mm. Or if you're lucky, maybe you have a choice of two. You might have the Catholic and the Church of Ireland school. So that's a real problem for people who don't want their children to be educated um, with, within a school that's under um, a religious patronage. Should we take religion out of education? Um, we would contend that, you know, our, our education system should be um, secular in nature um, and ideally should be non-denominational, not just multi-denominational. Um, and I suppose we've been campaigning on that for a long time. And uh, the, the UN has, um, over a number of years, brought that to the attention of the state, yet the state hasn't, hasn't grabbed that and said we need to do something about it. 
I mean, there is a, um, a programme for divestment of schools away from um, church patronage, but it, you know, its goal is to get to 400 schools by 2030. Uh, yet last year, only one school was divested, so there isn't really um, a hope of achieving that goal. And even if it was achieved, it would still be a drop in the ocean. Mm. And as was specifically to the question that you've asked, we would certainly say that you know, religion, if it, if it is to be included in schools at all, that it should be pushed to the end of the school day so that children of either no religion or of minority religions are not discriminated against during the day when they're supposed to be in school learning, um, you know, English, Irish, math, science, etc. That would uh, relate to at least a a third of the school population, would it? Um, It would, indeed, yes. Um, you know, when I say, you know, there's, there may be Hindu children or Muslim children or any other minority um, religion and those of no religion who, who are, are forced, you know, to be part of mm. mostly the, the Catholic school system. What about um, religious symbols, uh, crosses, crucifixes, that sort of thing? Should they be removed from schools? Uh, yes, the Humanist Association of Ireland would contend that they should, that, you know, it, it is, um, I suppose, um, discriminatory towards those who don't have a belief in those. Mm. Um, and, and we think, you know, as, as we're in, in the, the 21st century, well into it, um, that they would have no place in our education system and the same in our health system. Yeah. And they do permeate in many of our hospitals as well. Um, and we would think that they should be removed from it, absolutely. Yeah, and it's across the board, as you say, not just education, but the health service. You're also making the point uh, that there's discrimination against non-religious people or people of minority religions in prisons and in the defence forces as well. Absolutely. I mean, there was um, a a case recently with regard to um, the chaplaincy um, service within the defence forces where, you know, that has historically been, uh, I suppose, the sole preserve of the religious and and largely the the Roman Catholic um, religious. Um, So, like, we would say that 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 doesn't speak to all Irish citizens now when you think, you know, there's 69% of people um, identified as Catholic in the last census. So, what about the other 31% of people? The state has an obligation to provide services for everybody. Mm. And just when you look, I suppose, at discrimination within hospitals and schools, the Employment Equality Act of 1998, Section 37 of that specifically allows for discrimination on the basis of religion and employment. So a school or a hospital, if you have two people who've performed equally at an interview, for example, and one of them is Catholic and the, the ethos of the school or the hospital is Catholic, well, the Catholic person will be selected over the non-Catholic. I mean, would we accept that, for example, if it was a black person and a white person, would we say the white person should be advantaged? No, we wouldn't. We wouldn't accept that for a moment. But we accept it based on religion, which is extraordinary. Mm. What about um, politics? Uh, at the beginning of every doll session, uh, all of uh, the TDs stand up and say a prayer. Um, should that continue? No, it, it shouldn't. Um, we think that the doll and the Shannon prayers should cease. Um, and the same has happened in many local authorities as well. Um, and we think that, you know, there's, there's no place for that. I mean, it, you know, if, if the politicians wish to take um, a moment of reflection, you know, why not do that in silence and let every person reflect on whatever their own philosophy or life stance is? But again, it is discriminatory against those um, who are not of a, a Christian faith 
um, to have that. And I think, you know, in, in Ireland of, of uh, 2023, there's certainly our, our, rep- our public representatives are of many um, denominations and none. Um, and so too are the people that they represent. Mm. Um, so we don't think that that's appropriate um, in a modern day Ireland. Is it a question, do you think, Gillian, of mutual respect? Uh, because people will say, I have my faith and would you please respect it? Uh, but does it work two ways in that if people don't have a, a religion, that it shouldn't be put in front of their face, if you like? Absolutely, I, I would I would agree with that, and I think that I suppose people, uh, myself, I, I live in rural Ireland, and I'm very often, you know, told, but what what's what's wrong with you? The whole world will collapse if we don't believe, and you must believe in something. Um, so I suppose there has to be an opening of minds in lots of ways, you know, to realise that there is a significant portion of people now who don't have a religion, and it does have to be respected both ways. Um, and I just think at the moment the the balance is in favour of those who do have a religion. Um, but as I say, you know, the figures I've given there show that, that it's growing all the time, mm. um, the percentage who don't. And I say our, Ireland is a pluralist society and, and our state systems and structures should absolutely reflect that. Mm. It, it really is a, a remarkable change, uh, I think, uh, to say that 69% of the population are, are Roman Catholics. Uh, as you say, that may uh, be different in reality. The figure might be even even far less uh, because uh, people aren't practising Catholics, uh, but it is far short of the 80, 90, 99% of the population that would have been the case in recent years. Absolutely. Gillian, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Gillian Brennan, CEO of the Humanist Association of Ireland. Now, if you'd like to make comment on the programme today, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 0419832000. That's 0419832000. You can text or WhatsApp a comment to us. It's the same number, as always, 0861800658. That's 0861800658. If you want to text or WhatsApp a message to us or you can email michael at lmfm.ie Michael Reed on LMFM. A few messages coming to us uh, from people uh, not happy with what Gillian Brennan of uh, the Humanist Association of Ireland was saying there. One texter saying, if she has no religion, why does she care about people that does? Uh, Well, she's just saying, uh, your religion is your own business and keep your own business to yourself. Leave me out of it. Practice your religion in private uh, and good luck to you. Uh, I don't think uh, she's criticising people who have religion. She's just saying uh, keep it out of uh, the everyday things that we do and don't involve me or my children. Tom in touch with us saying is it right that we take things like crosses down in schools or hospitals and tell staff they can't wear a chain and cross but yet a Muslim woman can go to work wearing a hijab? Uh, Is it only the Irish that have to change to suit everyone else? Thanks uh, Tom for that. Uh, think the same point uh, applies there. Somebody else, uh, obviously uh, appalled by what they were hearing, saying, oh my God, get her off the air, trying to ban religion. What the hell? Trying to control people. Sure, what's new? That's a a loud texter as it's signed. I don't think they're trying to ban religion. They're just saying, do it uh, when uh, it suits you uh, in uh, the privacy of wherever it is you are without involving people who have no religion. Uh, But thank you indeed for your comment to the programme. Now let's hear uh, about a local issue. We're talking about Skullvrija Lanlera. Uh, I, I, uh, I visited the school 
Um, I, the issues were pointed out to me, but rather than me um, repeating how I took them issues, uh, I, I will actually just put on the record the letter that was sent to me initially. Uh, good morning. I hope this finds you well. I'm contacting you because our school didn't receive JESH status in the, list, in the latest round. But the secondary school that we are a feeder for, Scully Worry, achieved it. That's also in Dunlear. Uh, we ticked the boxes for JESH status. I've spent the last 14 years lobbying quietly for it. I've been advised the latest JESH status was given to schools on the basis of the 2016 census. However, we've had a new social housing estate built behind our school and there is planning permission for 40 more to be built. Even without this new build, we, we have always believed uh, that we were deserving of this uh, JESH school status. The reasons for which I'd like to explain. There are a lot of schools, obviously, who are genuinely disappointed and feel unfairly treated uh, like us and are struggling. But we lack the funding and personnel to meet the needs of everyone. That's pupils, staff and families. Staff morale is at a low. And my time is taken up with trying to manage things, but my chief role should be to lead teaching and learning. And, and I think that's what we'll get from many, many principals in relation to making sure that they can operate a school, that it can wash its own face, um, and that there aren't huge, huge issues. Now, in fairness, other issues that were brought to my attention uh, by the principal are the grants calendar, in the way that they're paid, that the cost of living obviously has increased, but capitation grant hasn't. It's based on enrolment figures, but the building still needs to be heated, late regardless of the numbers in the school. And we will always get anomalies on a year-by-year year basis. Also, this is an, an old building with a very old heating system, and you're going to hear all those issues of, from time to time, we cannot change the heating system to the system we'd like. We're trying to keep this going, probably with a, on the basis of bailing twine and whatever else. That's Rory O'Murakou speaking in the Dáil yesterday, raising some of uh, the principal's issues with uh, the school in Dunlear, but it doesn't end there. Another school in the near vicinity was the NRD, the monastery uh, school, which traditionally would have been the boys' school, and it got Jesh status, but school Moran Atrokara, um, which would have been the girls' school, didn't. And again, that obviously causes a huge level of issue. As I say, that's Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead, Rory Marku. Michael Reed on LMFM. Yeah, the long waiting times uh, to sit a, a driving test was raised once again in the Dáil yesterday. Uh, sanction was given for the recruitment of 75 uh, additional driver testers, and that was in addition to the 30 permanent testers who were previously sanctioned in July of 2022. And as of Friday, the 6th of October, 29 additional testers have joined the Road Safety Authority, deployed or in training with a four of 13 lined up for November. And this is a net increase to the organisation anticipated by the end of December of 42 personnel. But as you have said, the current average wait time for a candidate was 28.5 weeks. That's down from 30.4 um, uh, weeks. But that is still far above the accepted service level agreement target of 10 weeks. Um, and demand is up and continue to go up. Applications, it's 5,000 a week now. People, 5,000 people looking for driving tests a week uh, and applying. But we have to move on this, yeah. 
Uh, that's uh, the Tonish Jimmy Hall Martin speaking in the doll where I think they had a, a problem with the microphones but I hope you heard it clearly enough let's speak to Tony Toner former Garda driving instructor and on-road driving consultant uh, a very good morning to you Tony thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning uh, uh, to begin with I want to ask you about uh, this uh, Aviva insurance uh, survey uh, and if people should get a, an amnesty or be allowed to drive unaccompanied for a while but it really it seems ridiculous does it not that you have to wait seven months after applying for a driving test before you sit the test well we've had ongoing issues michael with the driving test and the backlog uh, every year we have some sixty thousand, fifty-five to sixty thousand people complete their leave insert and they're of an age then when they're going to college and getting a licence concur at the one time. It's not as if this can't be foreseen and pre-planned. But for some reason, we appear to be getting it wrong year on year, and it culminates then into long waiting lists, deep frustration, because to get anywhere in Ireland, particularly if you live in the rural areas, And indeed, in parts of Dublin City, you need a car to get yourself around the place. Mm. And you most certainly need a car if you're seeking employment. Mm. Yeah, as you say, to get to college, to get to work, uh, to to, to apply for a job, to get uh, to a hospital appointment. Uh, I mean, you could be here all day thinking of all the things that you need a car for, and particularly so, as you say, if you live in a rural or an isolated area for that matter. Um, I'm sure uh, it can be improved on. Very hard to understand why the backlog is so long. Uh, As we heard there, uh, they're working on it uh, and recruiting more and more testers all of the time. But for somebody uh, who needs a car tomorrow or yesterday or in the coming weeks, uh, they're in a a predicament. Uh, Do you support the idea that they should be allowed to drive with a company? No, Michael, I don't. I don't. And, and, and I, you know, it's not a direct comparison, but you wouldn't leave your six-year-old in the kitchen with hot plates and sharp knives alone and tell them to go in there and make dinner or do what you want. Uh, you wouldn't do it. You'd have them under supervision if you're tinkering around and you're going to make pancakes or you're going to do something or whatever. Now, giving them a mechanically propelled vehicle, as the law calls it, and sending them out into the public domain, particularly in at this time, in any urban area around. Now, I live in Dublin City, where the traffic dynamic has a life all of its own. If you've never driven in Dublin and you come up here, it is an eye-opener. The volume of traffic, the variation, the attitude, the aggression, and... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Uh, it's not open aggression. It's just people are very deliberate where they're going uh, and when they're going. They're, uh, and so if you're not used to it, you can be caught on the hop looking to see, am I on the right road? Am I, am I uh, near my destination? All of that mm. distractive stuff. But is that not the point? If you're not used to it, does it matter uh, if you have a a full licence and you go to Dublin or Cork or somewhere where you're not used to the roads, the drive your behaviour? And I think uh, a big part of it would be restrictions as well, where you think you're heading in the right direction and your sat nav might be bringing you somewhere, but then you find it's a one way street or close to traffic. Well, the act of driving itself. Michael includes a number of things. The technical side of using, you know, now the vast majority of people are using manual cars for the driving test. In, in, within five years, that will change dramatically to automatics as we enter, uh, you know, with gusto, the electric era, with automatics being, you know, more popular than, than manuals are currently. But you're getting used to gear selection, you're getting used to steering, you're getting used to the feel of a two-ton vehicle moving at pace. Whether that pace be 15k or 50k. Right? Mm. And uh, to do that unsupervised, just go out there and play effectively, I think is foolhardy because you're going to compound mistakes that are already there simply because you are a novice. You need somebody beside you giving you good direction in terms of technique, in terms of journey planning, in terms of road reading itself. Um, And while you have, generally, that is the role of a parent, um, that person who's driving has been sitting behind the said parent for the last, whatever it is, you know, 14 years of their, of their cognitive life. So yeah, already but, but what about the people listening to us now, Tony, who say, I've done all that, I'm past all that, I'm ready for my test, I know I'll pass my test, my instructor has told me I'll pass it with flying colours, this is not a, a problem, you don't need to worry about me, the only thing you need to do is give me the opportunity of sitting the test and allow me to pass it and give me the licence that I need so badly. Why are those people being kept off the road because of a failure of planning to uh, facilitate the amount of people coming through for tests, as you said at the outset? 
53% of people passed the driving test on the first time. That's the average rate around Ireland. Some of the centres are down as low as 38, 39% of a pass rate. <coughs> now, Michael, that does compare uh, to uh, favourably to our neighbours in the UK who have a similar um, experience with people doing the driving test. And they are much further down the line with driving tests in the UK, which they've been doing since 1936. We've only been doing them since 1964. And the accompanying parent going out with their son or daughter, some of them may never have done a test. And some of them may have, dare I say, driving habits that haven't been subject to any sort of scrutiny. <coughs> and they're passing it on. But as I said, 53% pass rate, 5,000 tests are being sought per week, 2,500 of them are going to fail the test, and they go on the pile of the next week because they're going to reapply, you know, or the mm-hmm. next couple of weeks. They're going to re- and the whole thing accumulates itself. And I said, this is all foreseen, Michael. Yeah. You know, and there has to be a better plan you know, from the testing uh, procedure. Mm. Well, put it on the school curriculum is the obvious one, is it not, Tony? Well, uh, you know, I've talked to you before about this. Mm. That young person today at 17, 18 uh, can travel the world with a visa card and a passport. Uh, (coughs) Way more advanced in life than certainly I was at 18. Mm. Um, But they still have to go through the procedure of uh, the, the test which hasn't changed, really, since 1964. Um, the, um, it's very difficult as, as a, a, a driver out on the road. If you're coming down a motorway and there's a car in front of you and there's L plates on it, uh, that driver's unaccompanied, Michael. They've never been on a motorway before. There's nobody supervising them. This, that, and the other. One, you shouldn't be on it without plates. And dare I say, the vehicle shouldn't be on the motorway without plates. So, like a parent driving a car that their their sibling is learning to drive in, before you go on the motorway, the idea of those L plates are that you can take them on and off, and you should not be using them, (coughs) certainly on a motorway. Um you know, hmm. telling me and everybody else that it's a novice driver that's behind the wheel, while in actual fact it's not. Okay. Well, we are learning the hard way about uh, the dangers of inappropriate driving with the huge increase in the number of road deaths. Uh, More pedestrians killed this year than has been the case for the last 15 years. Uh, The long weekend, statistically, speaking will prove uh, to be uh, the most dangerous time on the roads and as we've been hearing this morning research indicating that the dark nights and so on uh, will make it all the more difficult and more dangerous to be on the roads and we'd encourage everybody to drive safely uh, and to drive uh, accompanied if they're not licensed to drive. 
Tony, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Tony Toner, okay. former Garda driving instructor and on-road driving consultant. Let me bring you some of the comments coming to us. Uh, a text from somebody who says, Michael, if we go to a foreign country, we respect their culture, so people should respect our culture. The Angelus is a chance to stop and reflect. A prayer to my God, your God, should make us all pray peace, kindness in the world. That's from Breed. Thank you indeed. Uh, Breed, that's your culture. Uh, I'm not sure uh, you speak for everybody in the country. It's clear, actually, from the census that you don't. Uh, 69% of people say they're Catholics and a lot of those aren't. Uh, Not everyone looking for licenses 18 years of age, says somebody else. Some people only decide to drive in their 30s for work reasons, relocating and so on. Uh, Another text from somebody who says the whole driving license system in Ireland needs a complete overhaul. It's a disaster. A 17-year-old can hop into a month of a tractor with an even bigger trailer and drive away on their own but an L driver again aged either 17 or 70 driving even in a little Nissan Micra must have a full licensed driver fully licensed driver beside them it's actually laughable says our caller Uh, another text uh, then from somebody who says I didn't start driving until I was 57 when I developed arthritis in my knee I had no choice but to get a car but I can understand the need for new drivers to be accompanied but maybe they could relax the law and let drivers over 30 drive unaccompanied. Interesting. Thank you indeed for your text to the programme. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, they're being black in the EU report uh, by the EU Agency for Fundamental Rights was published uh, this week and uh, it looked at uh, the experiences of black people in European countries across 13 different EU countries and indeed to find out what it's like to be black in Ireland. They spoke to 524 people. 64% of people of African descent in this country are worried about becoming a victim of a racist attack. And more worrying than that is how 55% say they've experienced racial discrimination over the last five years. Let's speak to Yemi Adenuga, a Fine Gael councillor on Meath County Council, who is uh, on the line. And uh, a very good morning to you, Yemi, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. As a, a black person from Nigeria living in in this country. Are you at all surprised by those statistics? Good morning, Michael. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, maybe surprised is not the, the word I would use. I would say that I, I'm getting even more slightly concerned that I'll be living in Ireland for 23 years. After 23 years, we're still having this kind of conversation where we're worried about the increase in racism. At this phase, we should be celebrating the decrease in racism in Ireland. And I'm very sure that even as we're having this conversation, a number of people are getting upset that, oh, we're still talking about racism. And yes, rightly so, because we shouldn't be here at this stage. Mm. Um, I'll take you a step back. In 2018, there was a research, a European research paradigm was called the the life circle of a hate crime. And it did show at the time that Ireland ranked high up there, I think among the top three, um, where racism was concerned. And that for me was concerning at the time. I think the problem is that we think 
and that report and this report shows clearly that our perspective in the past has tended to be we're just fine. The system that we have in place generally are sufficient to deal with hate crimes. And that has proven proven to be quite incorrect. And um, the report shows that um, we are not dealing effectively with hate crime. We're not de- dealing effectively with, effectively with racist crime. And I know part of the problem we know is that we have no legislation, nothing really, or we have nothing to deal with hate crime. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the absence of legislation, then, the manner in which we address hate crime Um, And undoubtedly, hate crime should be dealt with. Uh, I don't think that there's any argument with that. But isn't that a little bit like putting the fire out after it started? What should we be doing to prevent the fire? Uh, I I take it from the findings of the survey and uh, indeed uh, how you've spoke to us before about how you've been uh, treated uh, by racist Irish people uh, in this country that you're perceived by some people at least very differently than other people because of your skin colour. Why is that the case and um, what can be done to change it? Well, let me be very clear on something, first of all, Michael. Um, there are a handful, a handful of people who exhibit racist tendencies. And the problem we've had in Ireland is that we have deflected from addressing the issues that have arisen from the actions of those people who were racist. And as a result of that, they have grown discipleship because we've not addressed those issues. We've constantly said, well, we're not racist, we don't have the problem. And yes, unfortunately, the handful of people who were racist and who continue to be racist and who persist in their racist actions have been able to convince a few other people and the numbers have grown. So that's the major problem. So let's be very clear about that. While there are millions of people in this country who still are very genuinely good people and very friendly and very warm and very kind people, we cannot ignore the actions of those who paint Ireland in a bad picture. And the whole of Europe mm. is now talking about I, Ireland and making Ireland look bad. Mm. So, are, are you sure it's only a, are you sure, Yemi, sorry to cut across you, are you sure it's only a handful of people? Well, here is the thing. You mentioned mm. something about putting out fire earlier on. Mm. When you start a small fire and you don't put it out, before you know it, an entire forest will be engulfed. Mm. And that's the problem. That's how we decisions started. And that's why it keeps increasing. So, Previously, it would have been a handful. Now, it, it's engulfing a number of people. And the sad thing is that people are getting upset that Ireland is being referred to as a racist country because we're not addressing the issue. Mm. So you ask, what should we be doing? I'll tell you a little story. When I first came to Ireland in 2000, there was a program on radio. It was an RT radio. And they were asking people um, who had just moved to Ireland if they wanted to engage with uh, maybe an Irish family, that they should pick up the phone and call the station. And I did. I picked up the phone. But it was after listening to that um, that promo, that advertisement, perhaps about 12 times. It had grown on me. And by the time I picked up the phone, I knew the number off by heart. (laughs) So I called the number and I was connected to this Irish family who, since 2000, have become not just my friends, but they've become my family. And it was through them that I knew more about Ireland than I, than I could ever have known. 
and it helps me get settled in this country. Right. Where is such a program? And first of all, the media has a big role to play in how they reflect reports, number one, in how they report incidents, number two, mm. and also in how they promote the unification of the diverse cultures that now exist in Ireland. The reality is Ireland is now a very diverse country. Mm. So the media are major stakeholders. They also have to come on board to ensure that they're promoting the, 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 the coming together of people, number one, number two, of people understanding willingly, intentionally, deliberately wanting to understand people of other cultures in this country. Number The second thing then is we have to begin to look at our mindset, our orientation. We are a welcoming country, right? We're the land of a thousand welcomes. We need to ask ourselves, ourselves that question. Does it really end at, hi, welcome, and that's the end of it? Or are we as open as we're expected to be? How many of our neighbors do we know mm. who are from other cultures? Have we spoken with them? Do we know their names? I'm talking about really simple, practical things that we can begin to do to enable ourselves to understand people better. You hate what, or you're afraid of what you don't know. You're afraid of the unknown. And a lot of people are afraid because they don't understand the diverse cultures, the different cultures. And they're afraid because they're not asking questions. And for those who are willing to ask the questions, they're afraid of making mistakes and being branded racist. So we have to create an enabling environment where we can have difficult conversations, where we can understand why, for example, a migrant will be upset if they are asked, where are you from or where are you originally from? Because they've just been told by somebody that they're Irish on paper, right? And then somebody says, oh, where are you really from? Mm. So all of these different kinds of things we have to understand. Plus, people have to remember that Ireland is a country where hundreds, millions have left the country to go live in other countries. So we who better to understand migration than Ireland? And we have families in different parts of the world who are thriving, who are growing, who have been embraced and who are doing well and are contributing to the economies of those countries. So we know what it feels like to be away from home. And it's a difficult thing for a person to up and leave their country and leave the life they've known and move to a different place. So when they've lived there for a number of years and still don't feel like they belong, it is difficult in itself and it is challenging. So that spirit of welcome, that spirit of enabling people to settle and feel welcome, it's quite important uh, to ensure that reports like this, in a couple of years, when they're redone again, mm. the people are beginning to feel, okay, things have changed. Another thing that is quite important, people feel, uh, migrants and black people feel profiled, racial profiling is a huge challenge, and you would find this in this report as well. Yeah. So how do we ensure that our system, our, 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 our police authority, our guards, are well-educated enough to understand that when you, are, when you stop a person and you're asking them questions, you're asking them questions that doesn't make, make them feel that they are being singled out or profiled because of the color of their skin. So these are some of the things that we need to start to begin to do. And we have to wake up to the reality 
that it does exist. We have to stop deflecting and ask ourselves, what can I do? What can we do? Black people are looking for allies. And allyship is not an easy thing, Michael. Mm-hmm. If you want to be an ally, it's not easy peasy, it's not smooth. Being an ally means that you have to be willing then to understand the pains of the people you are in allyship with. And you have to then be able to stand up for them and speak on their behalf and use the privilege that you have to help make a difference. Those are some of the things that we need to start to do. Okay. I wish we had more time, Yami. I've actually run out of time, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Thank you very much, Michael. And I'll just quickly say that a project that I'm working on called Call to Power, I would love people to get involved. If you read, if you're listening and you want to help do something, I would love you. Let's stop saying it doesn't exist. The report has shown that it does exist. Let's get involved. Please get in touch. Let's deal with this together so that Ireland becomes a better place for all of us. It is possible. And you have a role to play. Indeed. Yemi, as I say, I'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, and uh, thank you for joining us on the programme. A pleasure as always. Yemi Adenuga, Finnegal Councillor on Meath County Council. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Teaching 650 Tara Mines workers are facing a very bleak and uncertain winter. Um, they have, their income has fallen off a cliff. And there's about another 1,000 jobs in Meath that are also in serious trouble. Shops have reported collapse in turnover in recent times. Now, the workers have been listening to the Minister for Social Protection talking about income supports for a long period of time, but this is not going to happen according to current plans for a number of years yet. Can the government bring in emergency legislation to help the workers in tar mines? And also, the, elis- the issue of electricity is key. It's the elephant in the room. Other mines in Europe that our zinc mines are still operating because they're dealing with lower electricity Thank prices. You. Will you ask for Eamon Ryan to meet with the management and the unions at Tara Mines, please? Thank you. Uh, that's Peter Tobin of Ain2 speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday. The response from the Tánaiste Michal Martin, some may find surprising. Deputy Tobin, the Minister for Social Protection is actively working on the <coughs> issue of pay-related uh, benefit um, and um, will be bringing uh, proposals uh, to government and, and, and before the House um, um, in due course, and it's not—it's not my saying due course. I'm talking about um, in, 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 a, in a reasonable time frame, and I don't want to take. It's a matter for the minister to to announce that. Um, and I'm conscious of the the pressure on on, on Tara Mines, which was, I think, the more mar- world market price issue. Um, and I know that the Minister Coveney and others have been meeting with the company and the unions on a number of occasions. Um, and they will continue to engage with management to give any supports that we can um, in, in respect of it. Michal Martin giving Tara Mines workers some scope for hope. It would seem John Regan, SIP2 uh, sector organiser on the line. Good morning, John. Thanks for joining us. Morning, Is that how you heard that? No, I, that's all news to me. I've, uh, I didn't know that debate went on at all yesterday. Um, but look, it's it's, helpful that you know that they are sounding that way. But it's it, not. It sounds like it's a, an announcement is in, imminent, though, does it not? Well, look, I don't know. I didn't read that into what Nihal um, Martin has said. But uh, we'd welcome it if, if there was something imminent on it. Um, again, what we've been uh, looking for is a pay-related um, in line with Europe. And what they advocated in the uh, budget 
recently announced is positive insofar as it's going to happen, but it's not on the line. It's not going to happen until such time as November, uh, December next year. Mm. Uh, that's too late. That is too late. And, and if them comments made yesterday brings it in earlier, uh, we would be very, very happy with that. And, and more importantly, the workers of Tara Mines uh, and uh, others would be uh, obviously getting a benefit that is in line with uh, a percentage of their uh, income mm. that they have contributed for many, many years, uh, uh, you know, and, and paid PRSI for all them years as well. So it's it's really uh, something that they deserve, something that every pay, uh, PAYE worker deserves in this country, and that's what we are fighting for, and that's the campaign that we launched on Tuesday night, and mm. we're going to keep keep the pressure on. Yeah, uh, well, uh, we heard from the Times. Time will tell what it, it means, but uh, he says uh, that Heather Humphreys, uh, the Minister for Social Protection, will make an announcement in relation to this uh, within a reasonable time frame. Uh, and uh, uh, hopefully, I, I, I would take it, people listening to us are hoping that means within a matter of weeks. Yeah, if it happens between now and Christmas, it'll be very, very uh, helpful. We pressed upon the minister who was with us on the night, um, Minister McEntee, to go back to the cabinet and see could we get this brought forward. And in the absence of um, the actual final um, legislation on this, uh, which will take some time to go through the different houses and the stages, but in the meantime, we have pressed upon her to bring back to the cabinet that we want an emergency situation similar to what happened with COVID. And we've been consistently saying that since Tara Mines went into care and maintenance, that uh, it's within the power of the government to actually bring about a an interim uh, payment and uh, similar to what happened in, in, in uh, COVID. Mm. Um, and... You know, she uh, committed to bringing that back there and, you know, maybe it's helping uh, the decision and the announcement that was come out yesterday. Um, so, look, we are where we are. Um, it's one of the issues that we are pursuing at the moment. We are pursuing other things as well because it doesn't bring the mine back into no, of course uh, operation. Yeah. Which just just before you talk about that, John, no. just to put it into context, you're looking for 70% of average earnings or €550 Euro, uh, to be paid by the state uh, through welfare for a minimum of nine months. Yeah, and that's the Congress position. Um, so it's not just the sit to position. It's all the unions are seeking that. Uh, it's part of um, a submission we made to government, and it is going to br- that would bring us in line with Europe because what the government are advocating is a six-month period of support. Uh, again, that's stepping outside of what we currently have. The benefits that we get on the job seekers is a nine-month. Why would they call back to six months? Mm. It's just not the right thing to do, uh, and the nine months must be there. The 60% that the government is advocating, uh, again, is short of what what, what, uh, Congress and and the trade unions are seeking. So Mm. we're pressing to get what we obviously uh, submitted by way of for the budget submission. And, uh, you know, we're not going to back off on that. Uh, And as you say, that's why people are out of work, but nobody wants to be out of work. Everybody wants to get back to work. And uh, you were uh, just about to talk about uh, that ongoing Uh, unknown, uh, because that is of real concern at this stage uh, to you and your members. Yeah, it's huge because, uh, again, there's nothing like working and there's nothing like having the full wage going home 
And the fact of the matter is, I've said it on the show before, even if an announcement of a date to return to uh, a full operation of the mine, uh, it would only be phased. It would still take some time for uh, all the workers to get back in on uh, into employment. So uh, this, um, you know, the, the job seekers' benefit would at least cushion that situation. Mm. So, uh, but yes, we're looking for, uh, and we pressed hard, and we're still pressing on the company and the parent company to actually identify a date for when this is going to recommence. I was going but to ask you are. what you meant by the company because you're looking to engage with the parent company, in other words, Belayden in Sweden. Yes, throughout this, um, since uh, the 14th of July, we've been seeking um, uh, directors from the parent company to come and meet with us, uh, and we're still uh, seeking that. They haven't committed to doing anything. We did have one meeting in Liberty Hall with one of the um, senior management from Belayden, and uh, he certainly left us with a view that uh, everything would uh, be discussed. But in recent meetings with the management locally, uh, our agenda is not getting um, moved along in the same way mm. as the company wants to move their own agenda. Is, is, it, is it your belief that they have the wherewithal to open the mine now if that's what they chose to do? Could the Swedish parent company put funding? Have they got the funding uh, to put into County Meath? Absolutely, they have the funding. They are a very profitable company. They have only announced recently uh, their quor- this year's um, uh, finances, and uh, I, I don't know what the figure is, but it is in the millions, hundreds of millions of profits. So they can absolutely support this mine. They have to support it because the mine can't go, go any further without that support. The company has told us that they are running out of money. The loan that they got earlier in the year brings them up to the end of December. So we are at a cliff edge. And mm. the, the parent company has to come in here uh, in, in a number of ways. If it's to continue on with the care and maintenance into the new year, it needs funding. If it is going to um, entertain our agenda of a voluntary redundancy package and uh, a commencement date, uh, then it still needs money. The whole operation has to get finance from the parent company and that's why we're pressing them to come to the table and engage with us. Mm. Is there any chance that the mine won't reopen? Well, look at Michael, I wouldn't like to uh, um, say that that is, uh, you know, a possibility. It is always a possibility, but it's not on the radar right. at the yeah, moment. Not, the company not, has yeah. said that they are absolutely committed to the mm. mine and we can't, uh, you know, we don't believe it any other way. Yeah. Um, mm. There's a lot uh, of investment. I, 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 I don't mean to scare monger and I don't mean to put you uh, in an awkward position, but I'm sure people are very worried uh, about the long-term prospects uh, and also very worried about the short-term, apart from the bills uh, that are already owing, if that's uh, the case, Christmas now two months away as well, of course. Yeah, and, and again, it is um, going to be very difficult once Halloween ends now. It's going to bring another um, focus on the finances for Christmas and families are most certainly going to be very, very uh, hard hit uh, unless this, uh, what Michal Martin has said, if he delivers, then that will help the situation most certainly. And equally, if the company engage with us between now and Christmas uh, in the agenda of um, identifying a date and redundancy terms, 
then that will also assist. Because the reality is, apart from nobody wants to uh, sell their job and nobody wants to um, really have to contemplate redundancy. But at this moment in time, workers are not getting the opportunity to go into temporary employment. There are employers out there and there's a shortage of labour across all industries. And uh, they, they won't hire somebody that is uh, saying that they will go back to Tara as soon as Tara opens up. And that's a terrible situation to be in. Uh, you know, going to interviews, finding out then that you've really done well, scored everything. But by the way, because Tara Mines is going to open up someday, we can't give you a job. That is an unbelievable position to be left in. Limbo. John, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. Uh, and let's hope there's some clarity and indeed something tangible in the coming days. All eyes on Minister Heather Humphreys, John Regan, SIP2 sector organiser. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, a lot of uh, people still making contact with us after our interview with uh, the Humanist Association at the beginning of uh, the programme today. People who are objecting to what Gillian Brennan was saying uh, uh, about keeping religion private uh, and not pushing it in the face of non-religious people. 14% of people in the country say that they have no religion whatsoever uh, and uh, the amount of Roman Catholics in the country now at 69%. This is according to the latest census. Uh, but a number of Catholics in touch with us. Uh, uh, we heard from some people earlier on, Clare and County Mead saying, good morning, Michael. We live in Ireland, so other religions should respect our religion. All these do-gooders talk nonsense, says Clare. Thank you indeed. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, Clare, what you mean when you say our religion. Uh, it's not Gillian's religion uh, and Gillian uh, is uh, Irish uh, and she lives in Irish in Ireland uh, and uh, she's one of uh, the 14 percent of the population who doesn't want to go into a hospital with crucifixes and all sorts of other things when she's there uh, for health care. Or her children going to schools uh, under the same circumstances. Uh, Marie, uh, similar to Claire, saying, uh, I honestly don't know where this woman Gillian is coming from with her opinions. As the head of government in New Zealand said, we are a Catholic country. If you don't like it, no one is begging you to stay. Did the head of government in New Zealand say that? That's the first time I've heard that. Uh, Maybe New Zealand is a place uh, for Irish Catholics to go. I don't know uh, if that's the attitude there. Uh, But Marie says Ireland is a Catholic country first and foremost. And in Ireland, we welcome all religions, but not at the expense of our own Catholic religion. Uh, Yeah, well, it is uh, undoubtedly still a predominantly Catholic country. Uh, But people uh, who are not religious, who don't have a religion, uh, aren't worried about the Catholic religion. uh, And they're as Irish as anybody else quite often. So, uh, I mean, I think there's a couple of sides to this. Uh, And out of that 69% of people who say that they are Roman Catholics, obviously an awful lot of them 
say they're Catholics, uh, but in practice, it's a different thing. Um, we'd uh, WhatsApp message uh, from somebody who says, if the Irish abroad were asked, where are you really from? They wouldn't be offended. People are so easily offended. It drives me crazy, uh, says our texter. This is to do with being black in Ireland. Uh, and um, I don't know um, if... Uh, there's an argument there. Um, I, I think um, if you're Irish, white-skinned, abroad, and asking where are you really from, if you were living in England and you were asked where are you from and you said London because you were living in London and somebody said where are you really from, uh, I, I'm not sure it's uh, the same thing. Um, perhaps it is. I, I'm just not sure. But I, I think people get very offended uh, because they're Irish and uh, it's assumed that uh, they've come from a, a different country because of their skin colour. Uh, and maybe that's over the top. I don't know. Uh, but thank you indeed uh, for your message. Uh, Rose in touch with us today. And Rose says, I think if a young driver is fit to control his or her car, the driver tester is the one who is able to know if you're able to control the car or not. He or she should be able to give you the certificate to get your driver's license. Thanks uh, for that, Rose. Uh, I presume that's... Um, the driving instructor that you're talking about rather than the tester because uh, the problem is uh, that there's a lot of people who have gone through all of their lessons and they have to wait seven months before they get a test and as we've been hearing uh, there's an awful lot of people who are very, very uh, upset and worried about all of that. Um, we had Deirdre and Kells in touch with us about Tara Mines saying it's disastrous uh, that the mine is still closed. It's a big blow to Navin and she feels very sorry for the workers, as I'm sure most people do now coming into the uh, Christmas period, or at least uh, we're leading up to it over the next two months just a little under two months uh, to Christmas at this stage and not a, a nice time to be unemployed and as we heard from John Regan indeed as we heard from someone on our phone lines who is an employee of Tara Mind you just can't get a job when you go for an interview the company looks at you and say yeah you tick all the boxes as John was saying uh, but you're not going to stay here long as soon as they reopen the mine you'll be gone uh, but that seems to be the reality of uh, the situation for people who have been laid off by Tara Mines who are looking for work at the moment. Hopefully there'll be good news, as we heard earlier on in the programme today, for those workers. That's where our time runs out for today and indeed uh, for this week. Thanks to Maggie McGuire, who researched, as always, Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. Turn your clocks back. Happy Halloween. Bring an umbrella. And God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Tuesday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Goodbye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie.